Hey folks, thanks for checking out the Hunt for Real podcast. I'm your host, Tony Peterson. Today I'm speaking with a friend of mine named Mark Kenyon. Uh, anyone listening to this podcast probably knows who Mark is. He hosts the uh, Wired to Hunt podcast. He's part of the Meat Eater Empire, uh, currently currently involved in a couple series there, including the Back 40 and How to Kill a Buck. Uh, Mark is also a uh, freshly minted book author. Um, in this episode, we get into all kinds of stuff, including big woods bucks and how hard hunting public land big woods deer really is. We get into the public land issues. We dive pretty deep into his book, and we cover all kinds of interesting topics. It was one of the most fun podcast interviews I've ever done, and I think you're going to absolutely love it. As usual, thank you so much for listening to Hunt For Real. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do. That way you'll get every episode we drop every week. Thank you so much. In one minute, everything can change and it can become the best hunt of your life. It's a reality. Really understanding the landscape, that's what kills big deer. Mark Kenyon, welcome to the Hunt for Real podcast, buddy. Hey, thank you for having me, Tony. It's nice to have the roles reversed. I'm so <laughs> used to pulling into my show. It's uh man I I've been thinking about this a lot lately and I can't remember when you first had me on Wired to Hunt. I think it was maybe 2016, 2015 somewhere in there. Yeah, sounds about right. It was before I even really knew what a podcast was. I was kind of I kind of looked at it like oh, I'm just going to be on this dude's TV sh or this radio show and now I'm just a podcast addict. Um <laughs> and I realize how much that my appearances on your show have helped my career. I mean, people reach out to me all the time saying, I heard you on Wired to Hunt. I heard you on Wired to Hunt. So man, I, I really appreciate that you've uh, you've given me that platform and it and it feels good to return the favor now. I, I'm I'm real excited to talk to you for a bunch of reasons uh, that we're going to get into a little bit later, but we got to talk your Boundary Waters trip here up in Northern Minnesota because it looks like it was yeah. a little bit of tough hunting. Man, it was. And and thank you for having me on and, and for saying that. It's, it's awesome to hear that some good things came of it. I my audience, I know, has always enjoyed your perspective and what you've shared in the past. So it's great, like I said, to be able to be here. And yes, the Boundary Waters hunt was a hell of an experience, but a tough hunt. Yeah, that's uh, for for people who don't know. There's this corner of Minnesota, the northeastern corner of Minnesota, that is about as untouched as anywhere, maybe outside of Alaska. Um, as far as like real human presence and to get in there, you got a canoe and it's, it's a, a portage process. And the, the whole thing is there's a lot of work involved in it, but it's, it's back to like real wilderness, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's a really refreshing thing to be able to be a part of, especially after deer hunting and, and there's nothing wrong with deer hunting this kind of way, but hunting in ag culture where everything's developed and there's a human footprint everywhere you go, human impact is everywhere you turn, uh, to be able to go into a place where this is the exact opposite and you get to feel like you are in a seemingly untouched landscape. You kind of feel like the clock has turned back 200, 300 years. Um, that's an amazing thing on its own. And then to take something I love so much, which is deer hunting and bring those two things together is just a, a kind of a dream trip for me, which is what the Boundary Waters uh, excursion ended up being. <laughs> yeah. And it's, you know, typical destination there is just camping 
and camping with fishing. You know, there aren't a ton of people that go up there to deer hunt. And, you know, the reasons are pretty obvious if you've been up there, the the population (laughs) density. Yeah, I can tell you the reasons now. (laughs) Yeah, the population density is, uh, you know, one deer per 14 square miles or something. And there's nothing, you know, you think you're going to go off like maybe a burn or, you know, some islands that are connected or some kind of terrain feature, but the density is so low and you're not dealing with a destination food source in anything remotely comparable to the, like what, what we accept as the definition. So it's like, it, it, it's like a pure form of hunting deer, like you said, cause you know, we, we get used to sitting over food plots or even, you know, if you go hunt public land all over, you're still keying off of food sources on that public or food sources on the private that are man-made and totally not what we would have had a couple hundred years ago. You go up to the boundary waters. It's just like, well, here you go. <laughs> now now you're luck. hunting. Yeah. And it's a, uh, it's a rough one. So what, what did you learn, man? Like what, what did you, what did you take away from the deer up there and the deer hunting experience? Well, I would tell you that it, it was kind of what I expected, which was very, very low deer densities. I had, I had low expectations from a deer hunting standpoint. So I was going into it thinking I will take a shot at any legal deer I can get a shot at. That being said, I thought I'd get a shot at a legal deer of some kind. <laughs> I didn't see a single deer the entire trip, not one. Um, as a group, we saw two total and the only two deer that were seen were by the two guys that were in the canoe ahead of me as we paddled our two canoes around to kind of scout and fish an area and ended up having two does that were drinking down at the lake's edge and they spooked off and we beached our canoes and tried to make a move on them and it didn't happen. But, um, you know, I went into it kind of like you said, trying to identify some kind of feature that we could work with. So we'd spoken with a handful of experienced guys that have spent a lot of time up there and they had said that if you're going to key off of anything, the oak ridges might be worth keying in on. There are certain areas where there's a bunch of oaks on these little ridges and they're going to feed on those and hang out. So we picked a zone where there supposedly were some spots like that. And my game plan was to go in there and try to basically scout, 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 and work edges of some kind around those food sources until you came on something that was worth sitting over. And so I just basically took long, very slow walks and never came upon the things we were really hoping to find. Um, We did find a few scrapes, a few rubs, but it was interesting. 100% all of the sign we saw of deer was within about 100 to 150 yards of our campsite. The original campsite where we set up our base camp, it kind of was a little bit unlucky because we we set up here, we decided like this is where our base camp's gonna be and then we will make excursions every day out from here. We could go to various other lakes, we could portage to other zones. It was a good central location. And so we set up our Taj Mahal of, Taj Mahal of a wall tent and stove and that whole nine yards and we started walking around and getting wood and looking for grouse. And then we start up turning up all this deer sign right there. And I'm sure whatever deer were in the area, we blew out pretty quickly. There must've been a couple deer. There was a, there was a buck, at least one buck was in that area. Um, but we very quickly established our human presence, not realizing that that'd be the only rub, the only scrape, the only almost deer tracks we saw within miles. I mean, we, I did several mile walks most days exploring, um, and just didn't come on anything. I thought, you know, 
I don't claim to be a professional big woods hunter. That's not the area I had the most experience in. Um, but I was looking for edge, like inside edges within different cover types within the woods, looking if there's any kind of terrain feature that might funnel deer movement to some degree. But I think the biggest thing is that in a situation like that, those things probably would work right? Trying to find some type of terrain feature is a tactic that does work in big wood settings. Trying to find edges of different cover types in a big wood setting between maybe old mature timber and younger timber, that's something that can work. But when your deer density is so low, like you said, there's one deer over a square mile or two square miles or something. You just have to be enormously lucky to pick the right funnel or the right feature and to have that one deer happen to come through. Um, And it just didn't happen for us. That, you know, I love hearing you talk about that because what it, what it speaks to partially is, you know, this is the problem elk hunters run into, you know, somebody from Pennsylvania or wherever deciding to go to Colorado and hunt elk, the, the game density is so low that it's just a hard, hard thing to overcome. And, you know, there's, there's a difference there when you're talking over the counter tags and, and a bunch of hunters in there, but what you're dealing with there is is a problem that you could overcome with enough time and scouting. But when you show up and paddle in, you don't have that. I mean, I think about that. You know, I fish, I fished up north in northern Minnesota a ton in my life. And I've seen a lot of deer on islands over the years. And I've always looked at them. You know, you see a deer on an island and a lot of times you're fishing early in the morning. They come down to drink or you'll be close, you know, flipping the shoreline. You'll see them get up and run out of their bed. And it's like, I'll bet you you could find a a big old buck that lives on one of those islands there if you had the time. And if you located him, you could really make a good plan with canoes, but to yeah. just to overcome that first part is, you know, who, who knows how long it could take up there. Yeah. And that it's funny you mentioned that because coming out of this trip, the one idea I had was if I came back, what I think I would do is I would get set up with our base camp on a much larger body of water because accessing areas via canoe is by far the best way to do it. It's just so hard to go walking around this stuff and without spooking everything off and being able to move efficiently at all. So we set up on a very small lake. I wish we'd set up on a bigger one. Um, So we found one of these larger water systems, large bay that connected into a whole bunch of other stuff that ended up being the place where we saw those two deer. And that encounter kind of gave me this idea, which was maybe we should have just done this. Maybe we should just have set up on this big lake, like really huge lake, and then get up really early, stay up late and just canoe and glass the shoreline until you spot something and either try to make a move right then and there, or at least know, okay, that's where these deer were right now this evening. We're going to go in there early tomorrow morning and set up in there. Um, Try to do something like that. That might be my, my next tactic I would try next time around. Yeah, it's it's interesting the disadvantages we find ourselves at as hunters now in situations like that where it's like okay, I don't have the trail cameras. I can't I can't sit back with the tripod and watch all summer long. I'm showing up and I need fresh sign and I need sightings and I'm in a place that doesn't lend itself to either. Yeah. And you go, you know, I I just feel, you know, that that place you might not be able to pick a more difficult spot to hunt overall i mean it's just it's it's ranked real high yeah. and i think that that big woods situation you know we we get hit up all the time by listeners who are like talk more about big woods talk more about big woods it's it's hard just generally yeah. if you're doing public land in the big woods that's the hardest kind of hunting i encounter all the time because you don't have that basis of like 
All right, the destination food is here. I can reverse engineer my way to some kind of encounter. Mm -hmm. Up there, it's like everything's the same. And what do you find? Yeah. I'll tell you that the saving grace of this hunt for me was setting proper expectations. I went, in, I went into it knowing that all these things would be the case, knowing that it was going to be tough, knowing I wasn't going to see many deer. And that simple mental switch that I flipped made it a great trip still. In the, the old me or the me that's still goal-oriented might have gone on that trip thinking, you know what, damn it, I'm going to kill a mature buck up here and it's going to happen and I'll figure it out. And maybe I would have been really disappointed. But because I went into it, you know, still would love to get a shot of deer. But I also said, hey, this is the kind of hunt that you're going to go on for reasons other than just failing a tag. You want to be here to fully experience this place, to get to know this place. Um, so I let myself sleep in some mornings and drink coffee and just sit by the lake and watch the water and the fog rising off of it for an hour. I let myself say, you know what, I'm going to sit here and fish and I'm going to enjoy that aspect of it or different things. Um, yep. Those were the things that stood up for me. It was the it was the cracking poplin wood stove at night. It was the wolves howling in the middle of the night. Yeah. Um, those things make this one of the very best hunting trips of my life. Even though I didn't see a single game animal I was after. <laughs> um, I, so I was going to ask you about that because so how old are you, by the way? Thirty two. Thirty two. So you're just a puppy. So <laughs> do you feel you know you're 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 new to the fatherhood game? Mm -hmm. Think your life is your life is hitting the stage I hit six seven years ago, and I felt uh, in myself sort of. And maybe this is me looking back on it now. In, in maybe I didn't feel that way as it was happening, or or wasn't as cognizant of it. But I'm I find myself so interested in the experience and so less concerned with you know like guerrilla warfare on these deer until I kill a big one. Like I don't. And I say this all the time and people probably think it's just an excuse to kill little ones once in a while, but it's, I just don't care anymore as much about that, you know, gotta kill a big one. Yeah. And, you know, it's especially, you know, I know you're super active on social media. You look around like 170 inch bucks have become commoditized. I can see them yeah, everywhere. I can see 12 year olds kill them. I can see first year hunters kill them. I can see people. It's just nuts. And so I find with myself and I, I, I attribute this to being a parent is just being like, and maybe being in the industry a long time, but I'm like, man, the experience is what really matters. And that's, that's why I wanted to hear your take on the, the boundary water thing. Cause I knew the hunting was tough, but when you're around fishing like that and scenery like that and working to get to your camp and, and that whole being the dislocation and just being in that kind of thing is so special that it makes up for a lot of shitty deer hunting. Yeah, that's the truth. And I definitely have, uh, seen myself shifting in a similar way as you have. Uh, I'm still earlier in that stage. I definitely still have times when I want to go guerrilla warfare and shit, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but I'm definitely mellowing to a degree and, um, and realizing that the end goal, I, I just wrote a little thing about this. Just, I always have to remind myself of this because my default, my default mode is always go, go, go achieve the goal, achieve the goal success, you know, first is if it's not first or last. <laughs> so yeah. that's my default mode. But I guess I'm just self-aware enough to know that I need to pull myself back. So I have to have a little self mental talk. Say, Hey, it's okay. You didn't get that buck you're after. But just like you said, when it comes to being a parent, that has been a huge shift for me because whenever I find myself getting too stressed out or upset about a goal, not, you know, not achieving the goal I want or whatever it is, I can always 
hit that mental reset button and hey, and say, hey, this doesn't really matter. You've got a healthy, great son. You've got a healthy, happy wife. You have a home. Um, you're so blessed. You're so uh, you're so lucky. How can you be sitting out here hunting after you know ten days of hunting that anyone would would, would die to be able to go do that and complain? Yep. Um, so I, I find myself having those little self talks a lot more often now. That's and I think that's a that's a great thing to hear somebody like you because what what people don't realize about your life and my life you know to the extent that we're aware of it is you know partially our paychecks depend on us killing stuff like mm-hmm. I mean it's it's not we don't get paid to hunt but we're it's like adjacent it's playground adjacent man and and right. if we go for five years and we don't arrow any deer somebody's taking our place and so there's right. that pressure there but you see what the benefit of the experience does for you so you go to some place that's really hard to hunt and you get your ass kicked and you come out of that and people you know on paper look at that as a failure and i look at that and i'm like man you want to be a well-rounded hunter hunt hard stuff you yeah. know you know like we see in the media a lot of times we see an awful lot of specialists who are hunting you know easier deer or easier situations or situations somebody else set up for them and that's okay whatever but to be better if you want like to be better yourself, you don't hunt the easiest stuff possible. You go do no. things like that. And when you go do that in the boundary waters, you know, your next trip to North Dakota, you're going to go, this place is <laughs> a cake. candy store yeah. compared to that. And it just, yeah. and it, I think those experiences just inform like our being to just be better in all situations and recognize what's important. And like a, a good side, of, side benefit is we just become better hunters because of it. Yeah, I, I've always, always said that to myself and to others. I think sometimes the simplest thing you can do to become a better hunter is just put yourself in new situations. Get outside of your comfort zone. I mean, so many people just hunt their one little spot and their favorite stand or two, and that's what they do. And they wonder why their results have stagnated. Um, I'm constantly, constantly forcing myself into new states, new areas, new properties, new situations, um, because I want to challenge myself because I want to struggle. Uh, because like you just said, that's how you get better. That's how you grow. That's how you learn. Um, and if you can do that and also do that in places that are special, uh, for all sorts of different reasons, I I try to do that too. So I, I, I pick places to hunt sometimes, not just because I think there's gonna be a big deer there or whatever, but because it's a special place. So going to the places that we do in North Dakota that are just so cool, regardless of deer, going to a spot like this in Minnesota, um, going to some other locations that have been, you form an affinity for a landscape or you want to have the opportunity to develop an affinity for a landscape. I find that drawing me across the country or to different places within my own state more and more. Um, so I want to do, speaking of big woods next year, I want to do a big woods hunt in the Northeast. Um, try to track a deer down on foot in the snow. That's something that I've always wanted to try to experience and see if I can do that. Plus I want to get into one of those landscapes, um, like the Adirondacks in New York. So will I kill something? Probably not. Um, (laughs) but man, it's going to be really cool trying. It it will be. And I, you know, I've, I've done that with a muzzleloader in Minnesota, tracked them down and it's, it's really cool. 
I've only, I, I did it one time, I should say. It's not like I'm an expert at it. I just, I ran into the right situation one time where I got on a set of fresh tracks on the last night of muzzleloader season and just followed them with nothing better to do and came up over a rocky outcropping and looked down because they had skirted it. And here's two does bedded down below me, 40, 50 yards away. And I shot one out of the bed and it was cool. just like, it, it was, it was just, it was an experience that, you know, the conditions have to be right and you just have to say, what the hell, I'm going to do it. Yeah. And so, I mean, aspirations like that are awesome. And I think, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, people getting real comfortable in the same stands or, you know, I have this food plot I put all this work into, so I'm going to go sit on that. Or you see that in states with baiting where it's like this, there's this psychological thing where it's like, that's the spot I have to be. Right. And part of it is this self-serving thing where it's easier hunting for us generally. But part of it, I think, and this is what I got out of uh, this, this fantastic book you just, you just finished and fed out to the world here that I, I actually finished reading last night. We're going to talk about later, but you have lived your life uh, getting comfortable in uncomfortable places and situations. And I, I really took that away from the book. And when you're, when you're talking general life, that's a pretty good thing to have but when you're talking deer hunting if the if the choice is go sit the same stand on the food plot for the seventh day in the road or carry a stand in on your back you know scout on the fly and hang a stand a lot of people aren't comfortable with that type of hunting but it might be necessary not only to kill but just to have more action and enjoy yourself more yeah a a general rule i follow in life and in hunting is if you have a couple you have a couple options and if one of them makes you feel more uncomfortable that's usually the one you should go with, even though it's, it's, it's the harder, it's the more stressful. It's uh, going to put you in a new place. It's, it's usually uncomfortable and it's usually causing you some internal uh, turmoil because that's what you really need to do. So yeah. that usually guides my choices oftentimes. Yeah, me too. And I, I get a little bit, you know, toward, toward the end of bow season i kind of want to hit the easy button <laughs> sometimes <laughs> yeah, i get that i get that <laughs> uh, you know but i was thinking about this uh you know recently you know I, I had my trip out to north dakota in the same area you've been hunting get blown up my truck failed me and and so yeah. i went to a new spot in southeastern north dakota never been to before looked at it on the map a million times and it just didn't look that appealing to me i like that western north dakota i just i think there's like it is so beautiful. I just, I love it. It's just, it's one of my favorite places in the world. And so to not yeah. go there sucks, but time-wise, it just made more sense to go to Southeastern North Dakota and try that way closer to home. And I got there and I was like, this is just beautiful in a different way. You know, it's not the same, it's not even remotely the same kind of land, but you start hunting and start seeing deer and seeing bucks. And it's just like, it's like that feeling of newness and figuring something out and just being like, I've never been here before. I'm picking a spot on the map and I'm going in. Then you start to see deer and validate it and you start to have confidence in your spots. And it's just, it's an experience that just changes how you look at hunting at home in, in you know, away from home, you know, taking these new trips, going elk hunting, getting outside your comfort zone. And it's, it's always worth it. 100% agree. Hundred percent agree that forcing yourself to go through that process—it's the process of figuring something out—that is that is the most fun to me, and it's the thing that helps you grow. And so every time I can force that new process upon myself, it's usually a, a ticket to a good time and, and becoming a better hunter. Yeah, and it's you know if if you're talking, I mean, just hunting in general, but if you're talking big wood stuff, 
um, you really have to be open to the discomfort. <laughs> like you, you really just have to be open to, you know, you mentioned, you know, I'm going to go to the Adirondacks and track deer and I'm probably going to fail. You're probably right. You probably mm-hmm. are going to fail. If you go sit your best stand on your best Michigan lease or whatever, you're probably going to fail if it's yeah, just deer, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, and that, that's what, that's what I, you know, it pisses me off. I'll never forget. I think I talked about this on one of your podcasts, but you did, we did an episode one time. I had a good year on public land and filled all my tags. And I saw you, you posted it on Facebook and the very first guy to, you know, like you kind of posed like the question, what does it take to fill all of your tags in one season or something like that? And the very first guy posted, it's all luck. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, all right, you son of a bitch. Like, yeah. <laughs> first off, you you don't get to see how much of the bad luck comes in. Yeah. Like you're seeing this distilled version of a great season that boils down to some filled tags. And I, I tell people this year, I had a great year this year. I filled every tag I had, six different states. It was awesome. I also went a month without seeing a deer. A whole month. And I didn't hunt a ton, but I hunted enough where I should have seen a freaking deer and I didn't. And <laughs> well, nobody's sitting there going, oh man, you know, you had a lot of bad luck mixed in there. They're all like, oh, you went out and killed another one. You know, and that's how hunting works. It is. It is. And it's just a matter of, I mean, it's the very cliche uh, saying that uh, luck is where preparation meets opportunity, right? Yep. I mean, of course, there is a certain degree of luck in any one of our hunts, right? I mean, there's so many hundred thousand different variables that have to go just right the little tiny things all have to come together just right to get a shot at a buck or whatever it is that you're targeting um so many things can go wrong so yeah you need a little bit of luck no matter what but there's a whole lot of things that that have to be done right every variable you can control i like to try to be able to control it and and do every bit of work i possibly can which at least hedges my chances of being able to capitalize on that luck a little bit more and you certainly have been able to capitalize on this year um and that's that's the key to that's the key to some occasional success is doing what you can and then being there to take advantage when it's there it it is and it, you know i'm i'm starting to think it's it just boils down to and you know you want to talk about clichés like just keep doing the work like mm-hmm. keep getting up, you know, don't hit the alarm, <laughs> you know, like if you, if you want this, like if your goal is to be successful out in the woods, there just aren't a whole lot of shortcuts. I mean, you yeah. can, you can kind of hack nature in some ways we figured that out, but for most people in their hunting situations, if you're knocking on doors, you're walking out on public, whatever, you're not going to find a lot of shortcuts. You know, you're not going to buy a decoy that's going to make the difference for you most of the time or the sense or anything. It's just going to boil down to like, all right, you're going to keep going. You're going to keep working at this. And people don't want to hear that. You know I mean? I, I know they hit you up all the time. They're like, Hey, what kind of dope, dope should I buy? And it's yeah. like, yeah, it doesn't matter, man. You know, yeah, the, most the of the time thing is it's, it's, it's very kind of right. Adjacent to that same thought is very often we know the stuff we're supposed to do right today. There's information overload. Um, there's so many resources out there to learn about the things to do to have success as a hunter, but it's actually, I mean, it's the same as I think it's, it's executing. It's, it's following through on the thing. It's whether it be waking up in the morning and going out and doing it, or if it is, okay, I know that I should take the long route to get to my stand because of the way the wind direction is right now. Or I know that because it's after dark and I'm heading out after the evening hunt, I shouldn't walk straight across the cut cornfield to get back to my truck 
but it's cold out. You got hot chili waiting for you at home. Uh, you got a cold beer in the fridge. Dang it, I just want to get back to that. And so lots of times we'll ignore what we know the right things to do and just truck it right back across that field blowing every deer out. So it's yeah. so often to not just getting out there, but then taking it one step further and, and fully executing on what you do know is the, again, what's going to make you more uncomfortable? What's a little extra work? What's a little bit more inconvenient? Uh, it's usually the right thing. And yeah. so I, th- I feel like those two those two things will will put you in the right place most times. Uh, they'll they'll get you on the right path anyway. I mean, yeah. I I tell my little girls all the time, uh, like make better decisions. <laughs> you know, like if they screw up or they you know they do something, I'm always like you know like honey, like make better decisions. Like you know that was a dumb decision. You made it yeah. any why? You know, like are you happy with it now? You know, and you're not. <laughs> yeah. But it's like the easy one, or it's the one made out of rage at her sister for whatever. And it it's just make better decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's, let's back up a second. There was something I wanted to ask you about. Um, yeah. So when you're up there in the Boundary Waters and you're, you're taking in the experience and you're, you're in maybe some of the best grout, rough grouse hunting in the country, you know, uh, you're around some of the best fishing in the country. Did you find it was like, you know, was it easier to kind of focus on some of that other stuff knowing like the deer hunting is going to be crazy tough and I'm in this beautiful place with these other opportunities and I kind of want to lean into the grouse or lean into the fishing. Did that happen to you? Absolutely. Yeah. Cause once again, I was not so dead set on like, this is an absolute deer hunt. It was more so like, this is a experience of which deer hunting is a part of that experience, but also grouse hunting, also fishing, also sitting on a boulder and, and watching a loon. Um, so I wanted to fully, um, flesh out every one of those opportunities. So yeah, we definitely took some time and tried to do a bunch of fishing. We definitely did some grouse hunting. Our our biggest mistake of the trip was that we didn't bring shotguns. We had one guy that brought a little packable 410 and the other two of us didn't bring anything to small game hunt with because I was like, you know, I'm going to fish, but I'm going to hunt a lot. And, And Andy, you can you can do the small game hunting. And I should have brought one because that ended up being probably what we had the most success with was there were a lot of grouse. And so we could have had a whole lot more in camp and we could have been eating even better than we did if uh, me and my buddy Josh did bring shotguns and and got small game licenses. So that was our one mistake. But even as it was, we still went out and did it. Uh, I just played bird dog. So my buddy Andy (laughs) would sit in the middle as the the guy with the gun and me and my buddy Josh and my other friend Charlie would just walk around and pretend to be uh, German short hair pointers and uh, try try to bump something up. So it was fun. We got some grouse and we had some great meals and the fish. Fishing was surprisingly slow, actually, compared to for most people I've talked to and heard. Um, but a number of other people that were out there at the same time uh, said the same thing. So that made me feel a little bit better. It just wasn't, I don't know, it wasn't happening. So we caught enough, though, to have some good shore lunches. And just just being there and casting a line in the water just kind of completes the cycle. just feels like that's what you should be doing out there. And uh, we didn't haul in any 40-inch pike. We didn't haul in any 30-inch walleye, uh, but we had some delicious fried fish and grouse meals. We had to, we didn't have plates or anything, so we fried them up in a little pan and then dumped it all out on a boulder, and we ate it right off the boulder with our with our fingers. And you can't you can't get a better meal than that. Yeah, that's that's pretty awesome. It's uh, I I wanted to ask you about that because I I find myself thinking about that a lot when. You know, th- throughout my history of traveling to hunt, 
and you know I used to travel to fish a lot when I when I was a younger man. I, I still do some, but what I realized is the more I was open to just whatever kind of cool thing presented itself, the more I enjoyed it. And if I said I'm going mule deer hunting. I'm not buying any other tags. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. Inevitably, I would get there and I would go, I wish I had given myself these other opportunities. And, you yeah. know, sometimes you, you eat a tag or you, you know, you buy something and you don't really use it. But what I, what's a hard thing to get across to people is like bow hunting, especially for whitetail deer is an amazing thing. And we're super lucky to get to do it. But a lot of it's not that much fun. A lot of it is work. And it's, yeah, it's yeah. It, and that makes the reward so high. That's what we're chasing. You know, you mentioned how goal oriented you are. Like it feels good to arrow a good buck. It feels good to arrow a little oh, yeah. one. Like it's not, yeah. there, there's, I'm not, I don't mean to diminish that in any way, but it's a lot of it's not that much fun. When you go, like I, I'm gearing up to go really get after pheasants on public land in Minnesota now because my tags are filled and I got an awesome dog. I guarantee you I'll have more fun pheasant hunting than I typically do deer hunting. And, you know, <laughs> people hear that and they're like, what do you mean? And it's like, it's just, it's just a different thing. And when you travel yeah. and you're sitting on the, you know, you're sitting on the shore of an awesome lake in the boundary waters and you can fish, fish, <laughs> you know, yeah. like have some fun. If you, if you go into a place with a high density of grouse, bring a freaking shotgun next yeah. time because you're yeah. going to have tons of fun live and learn tony live and learn <laughs> That's yeah, <laughs> dude it happens man and it, you know it it's almost like you know i mean it, it we hear about it all the time like oh i didn't buy the bear tag and the bear walked right up to me or i didn't buy the antelope tag but man you spend enough time out there you see that stuff happen and i'll i'll never forget the very first time you know i started 10 years ago where i was like I'm going to focus hard on public land whitetails. And my very first hunt was out in North Dakota, in Western North Dakota. And I had 10 days. This was pre-kid days. So I had four days to scout, six days to hunt. And just on a whim, I bought the small game tag and brought out my shotgun. Cause I'm like, dove season will be open. I've, I'd hunted mule deer and, and uh, antelope in the past out there. So I was like, you know, what if I shoot one on opening day and I got to stay with my buddies for six days? I'm going to dove hunt. And I'll tell you what, brother, I shot a great buck opening night. You know what I did for the rest of the time? Freaking dove hunted. And it was <laughs> awesome. I mean, it was just like, it was so much fun. And it was like one of those things, if I tell somebody from, you know, if I do a seminar here and I tell that story, people look at me like I'm an idiot. They're like, I'm not driving to North Dakota to hunt doves yeah. and i'm like no just just give yourself the opportunity for more like if if Align they're yeah. yeah you know it, it's the same thing you know i went to colorado elk hunting this year i bought a bear tag because they're going to sell me a non-resident tag for 100 bucks i'm like if i see a big bear i'm going to stalk it i never did except at night but that you know for 100 bucks you're already driving you know 16 yeah, seven <laughs> why not i mean it, yep. and and that that leads me uh i want to I talk about your book that wild country because that leads me to something that really struck home after reading it was that it's easy for us to be like, well, public land is for hunting. And you you get into this in this book a lot where like, man, public land all across this great country of ours is multiple use, multiple recreation. It's it's not good to be myopic and say, okay, this is my thing and I use it for this when yeah. there's so many opportunities out there. Yeah, that's the tricky thing about our public land in this nation is, is what makes it so great 
but it's also what causes there to be so much controversy around it, which is that these places are here for a lot of different uses. That can be, like you said, hunting. It can also be climbing and biking. It could be fishing. It could be camping. It can also be developing, you know, re- and having resource extraction in some places too. So you've got all these different stakeholders that own this land to a degree, but then you are then butting heads with all these other folks that have the same privilege as you. And that leads to, you know, uh, a messy kind of family Thanksgiving dinner atmosphere for 150 years. <laughs> but, you know, the end result in, in many cases, as long as we're standing up and, and speaking out for them and, and being an advocate for these lands, um, it leads to this incredible public land system that we have today that, that we can take advantage of. We can, you know, our nation's able to make it relatively profitable keep them around enough that we can then enjoy them as recreationists and then wildlife and clean air and clean water can all be byproducts of what we have it's a, it's an incredible system that's not all that common across the world we're really lucky to have what we have here in america yeah very uncommon yeah if, you know if you're being honest and when, when i'm going through that book it, what it reminds me of is you know, we as hunters, you know, we, we look at deer management and deer hunting through like the scope of our experience, you know, so whether that's, you know, hunting on the family farm or, you know, it's deer camp in Northern Michigan, you know, for the, for the rifle season, how, however we've been exposed to it, we look at it and we go, that's, that's deer hunting. So when mm-hmm. you ask those people, like, what do you think should be done about deer management or how, how is the DNR handling this? That's just the default scope yeah and that's human nature 100 percent. well we do the same thing with public land and i'm guilty of this too that's why it's been really refreshing to see you come out to the boundary waters because that's you know i can get up there in four hours five hours from my house mm-hmm. and so it's kind of like an afterthought for me because i've been there done that and so it's like easy for me to forget like how amazing that is for other people but then i travel yeah. somewhere else and i see and i go holy shit, this place is amazing. And there's locals yeah. who are like, eh, whatever. Right. We, we look at public land the same way, like public hunting land where it's, I mean, how often do you talk to somebody who's like, yeah, you don't want to go to Nebraska. The, the public land is overrun with hunters. Then you go to Nebraska and you're like, wait a minute, this place is it's amazing. Great. Yeah. yeah. But we have this it's like- all relative. Of course it is. And I'm, I'm just like starting to think like the, maybe the best message, cause we all know now we need this public land. Like if you're fighting against public land, you suck, like stop. <laughs> like we need this cause we, we yeah. need access. Like it's one of the keys for us to be sticking around and for your little boy to keep hunting and my little girls yeah. to keep hunting. It's incontrovertible. We have to have it. But instead of thinking about it, like the public land down the road from my house or the public land that I rifle hunt two weekends a year, this is a this is a broad, tremendously important resource we have across this country that's not only, you know, the the 40 down the road, but the millions of acres out west and the Adirondacks and all of this. And it's a resource we have to think about as something that's like that, you know, it's a, that's a hill worth dying on. We we need that. Yeah. And I think one of the big I don't know if it was a lesson that I learned, but at least had reinforced was the fact that, and I think many people fall uh, prey to this. It's that I've been taking it for granted for a whole, a whole long time. And a lot of people take these places for granted. Um, they are not guaranteed. They are not locked in. They are not um, immune from 
destruction, from sale, from transfer, from a lot of different things because they are in a constant state of flux. There is this game of tug of war going on within our nation, constantly pushing and pulling, involving many of these places that we go to, whether it's camping, hiking, hunting, fishing, whatever it is. And if our end of the rope isn't getting a whole lot of people yanking really hard and making a ruckus, uh, there's a whole lot of money and other people that will rip it real hard in the other direction very quickly. And over the course of the last 150 some years, we've seen this rope get tugged far to the left, far to the right, all these different sides. Um, when one side or another gets that momentum and that boost, and we just need to make sure that these places have advocates that the boundary waters have advocates that Yellowstone National Park has advocates that the state land down the road from you has advocates that the Bob Marshall Wilderness has advocates because if we don't speak up for these places, nobody will. Yep. Well, and that's that was you know you you drove that point home in your book multiple times, and it's it's an interesting read. And by the way, my my wife asked me. She said, "What what'd you think?" Because I finished it laying in bed last night. And honestly, finishing a book like that, writing a book like that, and the research that you did in there and the way you pulled it together, I was like, how do I, how do I put this in terms like Mark and the, re- and the listeners will understand? And it's like, if you went to Pennsylvania and killed a 163-incher on public land with your bow, then you came home to Michigan and killed a 171, and then you drove to Louisiana and killed a 143-incher on public land in the same season, that probably wouldn't be... The same kind of accomplishment as finishing a book like that. That that is no joke, man. It's it's you did an amazing job on there, and I want Thank people, you. I want people to read it. It's not a hunting book. That's that's one thing that surprised me. I want I want people to understand that you know there's it. That's like an undercurrent for sure, mm-hmm. but the broader theme is not you know this is this land is awesome because of hunting. There's there's so much more to it than that, which was actually really refreshing to get into and realize. But what I want people to understand is the history and that tug of war that you, you bring in that uh, that dynamic that we've had for the last you know century and a half where it, that has proven to us we don't have this as a guarantee. This mm-hmm. stuff can go away. And yep. when it goes away, it's gone. So we're not getting it back. And how, really how serendipitous it was for us now to have just a few key characters throughout our history come in and say appreciate the same things we do ascend to levels that allowed them to really influence and make this stuff happen i mean it's really like a crazy experience we have going on here and it can all go away yeah it, it really can and I mean, over the last five years, what originally inspired me to, to try to dive into this topic was the, the recent controversy around this whole land transfer idea, um, which was for me the big wake up call like, oh, wow, there's a lot of these places that you've come to love that, that possibly could be in danger. And then that was what triggered me to realize, wow, I'm reading about this stuff from current people within the media right now. Um, but I don't really understand the backstory. I don't know the context. How do we get to this point? And I was hearing little catchphrases and words. I was hearing about this thing called the Sagebrush Rebellion. Uh, I was hearing about the Wilderness Act or different things like this. And I realized I had no, I didn't have any kind of real depth of understanding that got me to point A, which is today. So I realized then that 
if I don't know that stuff and I live this, this is my world. If I don't know that stuff, what about the average guy or girl in the street who lives in Detroit or who lives in Minneapolis or lives in LA? Um, they probably don't have a clue. They might not even know they have 640 some million acres they can go out and explore. So I thought to myself, yeah, I don't, I had like this back and forth. I said to myself, I'm not a conservation professional. I'm not a historian. I don't live in the middle of these vast public landscapes that are um, so, so much a part of the larger discussion here. I haven't been involved in these fights for 50 years. I'm a young guy. Who am I to try to write this book? But what it came down to is I realized I am, I think I am just like everybody else out there. I'm the average person who, who loves these places, but, but didn't for a long time, didn't really realize how they're still here how we got them, what's going on now and how, what we need to do to keep them around. So if, if from that lens, from if, if I could learn that stuff, maybe I could share that with people in a way that the average person would understand and, and maybe inspire them or intrigue them enough to get out there and check these places out and learn a little, a little bit more too. And that's what got us to this point. It was a heck of a project, um, but a lot of fun. Uh, well, I bet it's, I bet it feels like a lot of fun now that it's finished. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it was something, man. It was the, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. Yeah. Um, I, I don't doubt that for a second. Um, so a couple things I noticed in there that I want to ask you about partially just cause I'm, I'm curious as a writer myself, like the one thing, the one thing that struck me in this book and and I, and I want to know how you feel about it is there's points where you write from like a real place of vulnerability and, and personal vulnerability. Some of, some of the stuff with your dad that you wrote about, um, one of the best things in the whole book about you learning about your, your camper and not, not, uh, understanding how that, I don't want to give that away cause it's great. Uh, but I, I realized, yeah, yeah. um, you know, like, when when you started the chapter where you're hauling the camper and you're talking about white knuckling it down the road and how much that sucks, I'm like, in my mind, I'm like right there with you. <laughs> and I yeah. I realize I, I was thinking about this anyway. As a writer, as a content creator, like that we do this thing where we're like supposed to be experts and we're supposed to answer. You know, we're supposed to take people and take them from not killing a buck to killing a buck, and you know, be the conduit for that information, whether it comes from us or one of your guests or however we do it. But you don't, a lot of times you kind of don't get to be like honest in, in it, not that you're being dishonest, but you don't get to be honest about everything involved with what's going on in your life and how there's so much more to this than just killing a freaking deer. And that there's points in that book where I'm like, man, there's a vulnerability here that really makes this hum. Like it really, it, it kind of it kind of melds with the history because there's parts, there's long parts of history and then there's personal experience and anecdotes. And then there's this just like element of vulnerability at certain points that makes it, makes it feel more real. And I just want to know, like, what was it? Were you aware of that when you were writing this? So I think this um, stems from the very beginnings of my career where uh, I had always loved hunting but I grew up in a hunting family that in, in a place where we didn't really have a lot of success. <laughs> we never, we didn't see a whole lot of deer. It was kind of a very traditional hunting family. We went up to deer camp. We'd sit next to a tree or we sit in a blind and you saw a couple deer. But since I started going up there, the, the deer population had gone down tremendously. So I think from the time I started going uh, to camp when I was like five years old, 
up until I was, I don't know, 19 years old or something like that. When I finally killed my first buck up there, um, there were five deer killed over that whole time period or something. Uh, so the point being when I started wired to hunt as a website back in 2008, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of deer hunting cred to establish me as any kind of person to listen to. So I realized right out the gate, like I'm passionate about it. I absolutely love the outdoors and I love deer hunting, but I can't sit here and tell people what to do because I don't know what to do. I'm just figuring it out. So from an early point at that point, it was simply, okay, all I can do is share my journey. I can share what I'm doing to try to learn. I can share all the ways I've failed. I can share all the things I've struggled with. And I can share what so-and-so told me, which I'm hoping is going to help me. And I'll tell you about it too and hope it helps you. So that is how I started my deer hunting career. Basically just sharing my personal journey of how I'm trying to figure this shit out. Yep. And so that meant like, I, I couldn't lean on my wall full of big bucks. I couldn't lean on me being the guy to come to and answer all your questions for you. All I could lean on was, hey, I'm a guy just like you who doesn't know what I'm doing. I'm trying. I'm trying really hard and I love it. And I'm trying to soak in as much as I can. And I'm just going to put it all out there for you. So that's what I did with Wired to Hunt for a whole lot of years. And that's continued to be kind of my, that's kind of my thing. That's what, that's all I've got. I'm not going to sit here and tell you I've got all the answers, but I will sit here and tell you whatever happens, you're going to see whatever stupid things I do, you're going to hear about it. And when I do have success, you're going to get to, you know, share in that with me too. And so that I think translated both from my hunting writing and podcast and all that now into writing this book, uh, same kind of thing. I'm going to uh, share everything. I've, I've always been pretty comfortable. You, you said the, you, you call it vulnerability. I've always been pretty comfortable with that. Um, there's some people in the hunting media, like I can point to some other people I've worked with and mentors who you look at and like they are, they are successful because they are the representation of excellence. They are the person you can look at and say, this guy knows everything. He does everything right. He knows the right things to say. Um, and because of that, people really respect him and they can follow what, he, what this type of person is doing. And, and they have that. I think that my role has been someone you can relate to. Yeah. I think I'm not necessarily going to be the representation of excellence, but I'm going to be a representation of someone you can relate to who's trying hard, who's a real person. Um, and you get to, you get to follow that along. And so I tried to make sure that was the case still with this book. And I'm glad to hear that, that, uh, that resonated with you. Uh, it did, man. And it's, it's an interesting thing for me to look at. Cause I, you know, you, you've been doing this since you were young and to come at it from that perspective of like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I'm just, I just, I love it. And I want to spread the word, share it. I, I came into this, uh, similarly, I, I had hunted a long time, but I didn't have like, I, you know, it wasn't like I was stacking up 150 inches. You know, when I got my first job at Peterson's bow hunting, I had killed a couple of mature bucks in the last few years. And, and that was after like 13, 14 years of bow hunting hard. And so I had, you know, crazy imposter syndrome where I was like, I don't freaking belong here. Like, yeah. I don't, these people are going to figure me out. And so, but I also ended up in the industry with people who I, I like, I had looked at and thought these guys are the experts. Then I got to know them. 
got to talk. And I'm like, no, they're just, they're presenting expert, but yeah. they're screwing up. You know, they're not screwing up as much as I was, yeah. but they're certainly screwing up more than they present. And I, I kind of hit this point in my career where I got like burned out on that, that standard of like excellent, you know, like faux excellence that we, we yeah. saw so clearly on TV and somewhat in the magazines. And then you see this, this, this sea change happen where, the personalities like Ranella and Newberg took over the industry and they didn't take over the industry, but they, they really changed how we look at it. And it's the same thing you're talking about where they, they just came in and they showed us all the warts, all the bad shit. And people went, Holy cow. I've been, I've been watching this guy who showed me this 21 minutes of TV show of, you know, killing big buck after big buck with none of the bad stuff. And then you have this change and it's just, it's refreshing to see. And it's, it, it makes me, I'm still like, I still feel imposter syndrome with this. I'm still like, this is stupid. Like, why do people, they're going to, yeah, they're going to figure me out. You do too. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's, it sucks. Like I, I wish I was super confident all the time in this, but I mean, I, like a couple of weeks ago, well, a little longer than that now, I killed a buck in Wisconsin and I killed this big woods buck on carrying a stand in spot. I had found the year before walked in there. Sign was there, hung the stand, had a giant at 70 yards. I've told this story before. Didn't get him like a 160 on public land. The, the biggest buck I saw this year anywhere on public land. I was, I was convinced I was going to kill him. He just went the other way and, Anyway, later that night, I, I killed the smaller buck, which was still the biggest buck I've ever killed over there. But when I set that stand up, you know, you can't you can't cut shooting lanes, public land, you know. So you're like, OK, well, uh, these trees are my options. And I got into that, the tree that I picked, and it was this this paper bark birch. And you know how, like, shiny that and, like, smooth that bark is? Yeah. I tightened down, you know, first off, my sticks are like, squeak, every time I stand on them. And then I tightened down my stand, and it's just like noise like every time i move squeak and squeak i'm like this is never gonna happen yeah, these deer like, bust idiot. me this is so stupid <laughs> I, dude i was i was hanging off the side of my tree with my lineman's belt and i was like i'm i'm too sick of this to pull this and hang it i don't have enough time and i'm just gonna ride this thing out and i'm like if if people could see this part where i'm just sitting uh -huh. here like swearing at myself because i know you know you put that first set of sticks on it squeaks then you get on that one, you put the next one on, it squeaks. I know when I tighten that stand up what I'm dealing with. And I freaking did it anyway. And it was just purely an act of God that I ended up killing a buck that <laughs> night. And only because I heard him coming way before and stood up. And when I stood up, that stand made noise and I just got lucky. <laughs> but I think about those moments and I'm like, people look oh, yeah. at this like, oh my God, this guy walked in and killed this awesome public land buck. And he's, you know, like he's doing everything right. And I'm like, I did, I did so much wrong, <laughs> you know, like. It's it's just wild how it works out. Sometimes you just gotta be there at the right time and place, and but you need to put yourself in those positions enough times, the right way for it to come together. The, the few times when it's crazy like that. Well, you do, and it kind of makes you realize, like, hey, these things aren't like Mensa members, man. They're they're still rabbits with antlers, and yes, yes. <laughs> you know, if they were wild as critters. smart, yeah, if they were as smart as we said they, you know, we like to make them seem. Sometimes we'd never kill them, but it makes me. It makes me feel better hearing that you suffer from imposter syndrome oh, too. Man. Yeah, absolutely. Every day, whether it be by my original full-time job, I always felt like, oh, someone's going to tap me on the shoulder and tell me, oh, you, you, you showed up at the wrong office building. Or now I feel like <laughs> with the book, I keep, I kept on waiting after I did this book 
Um, and I still, it still might happen. It's still early, but I kept waiting for someone to say, Oh, this thing's a piece of crap. How did you get it published? Or when I was working <laughs> on, when I was working on, uh, you know, writing through the early drafts and I sent my first set to my editor, I was just waiting for her to be like, Oh yeah, you know, I'm sorry. This just isn't just not quite what we're looking for. Try again some other time. Uh, or when it, you know, it got published and it's, it's a real book. Now I'm waiting for the first set of reviews and everyone's going to say like, Ooh, yeah, just not a, this isn't a real book. Is it? Did you really think people would like this? <laughs> um, so yeah, there's that constant worry. And, and like I said, it still could happen, but to this point, knock on wood, um, it's been well received and I'm, I'm very thankful for that. And it was a labor of love. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, you know, you know, from your career that as soon as you produce something, somebody's immediately going to shit on it. Like that's just how that's, that's yes. how society works right now. Somebody's going to come out and tell you how terrible it is and you oh, know, yeah. they can go kick rocks in the street, but it's yeah. no, it's, it's, it's an impressive book, man. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's worth a read if you like, if you like this country and you like public land and you like to hunt and you like to fish and you and you are interested in what the future can hold for us, good and bad. And that's yeah. that's something I, I, I've been thinking about. I thought about this morning, you know, like what what am I gonna talk to Kenyon about? You you talk a lot in the book, you write a lot in the book about uh little things you know the the land transfer thing caught everybody's attention and us in the outdoor media we all went nuts and that was an awesome example of like a social media uprising that that showed the power of the outdoor voice yeah but not everything is straight we're going to transfer land there's smaller things going on that'll degrade public land or degrade your experience or could result in us caring less about them you know and i, I don't remember exactly the the examples you use but like for the listeners you know take take the uh boundary waters that that you were at if you know if mining take takes hold up there and all of a sudden the fishing goes from you know, generally pretty amazing to now it's real hard to find a walleye or a smallmouth or the northerns. And, you know, you, it might be a gradual five or 10 year thing, but what you'd see is attrition in enjoyment and attrition in visits. And eventually it would be, you know, conceivable to argue that this, this land isn't worth what it used to. People aren't coming here. They don't appreciate it anymore. Let's sell this off. And yeah. There's, there's that, you called it a death, death by a thousand cuts. And it's a very real thing going on out there. Yeah. The tricky thing about it is, is that is happening every single day across hundreds of millions of acres, these little decisions being made by a whole lot of different folks. And very often we'll, we never know about it or what little gets out there. It gets very little media play. The average American is never really going to be able to have a say in it unless you are really tuned in, unless you are making a proactive attempt to stay up on what's going on. And so I do think that that's, that's probably the larger threat than the land transfer ever really was because yeah. the land transfer, like you said, it, it, it caused an eruption of protest. It caught people's attention. It's really easy to get people fired up when you hear someone say, I'm going to sell or get rid of your land. That's pretty easy to say, uh-uh, bad idea, but it's, it's a much, much easier to for years on end say okay we're going to open up this 10,000 acres to more mining and uh, we're going to slip in this little amendment that keeps you from being able to 
buy any additional land for hunting access, or we're going to slip in this little thing that says, okay, now you can't actually, or maybe now you can drive your trucks all across this unroaded place. Uh, and all these little tiny changes are getting, are getting slipped in here and there. Um, that over the course of months and years and administrations, that adds up to real change, which adds up to exactly what you said, a reduction in appreciation, a reduction in use, or people providing negative feedback and saying, hey, these places aren't getting taken care of the way they're supposed to be. Um, we should get rid of them or give them to someone else who can manage them better. When in fact, it was caused by budgets being slashed or caused by these changes being made unbeknownst to us. Um, so I think that's where we're at right now. We've pretty well put a foot on the throat of those trying to transfer our public lands. We've made it very, very clear. And it's a great example of the power that we can have as public land owners and advocates. Like when this stuff happens, when we band together and make a serious ruckus, we can influence change. We did that. But now the big challenge is how do we keep an eye on everything else that's going on because there's there's umpteen different examples right now of really special places being threatened by changes like this like the set of mines that are being proposed right on the edge of the boundary waters wilderness that this type of mine has never been implemented in america without a significant pollution event um they are looking to put a huge mine in bristol bay um, in alaska the the largest most important salmon run in i think all the world, if not just North America, uh, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge up in Alaska, another incredible place, yep. another very fragile landscape that has been fought over for decades and decades and decades trying to keep this place protected and now just recently opened up for drilling. Um, there's there's a thousand different examples of this going on all over the country right now. And it's important, at least from my perspective, to note that Part of, and we said this at the very top, part of what makes our public land so special is that they are multiple use. And when Theodore Roosevelt set aside so many of these landscapes and when he really started to advocate for this national conservation ethic in America, very often in many cases he said, hey, there is a way to uh, extract resources. There's a way to develop these lands in certain ways that are responsible and sustainable and that are in sync with also keeping these places around for recreation, for wildlife, for clean water, all these things. But it has to be done in the right ways, in the right places, and with the future in mind. He was always very, very focused on making sure decisions were made for the next generation. And businesses and folks that want to accrue accrue profit from these landscapes today, in many cases, they're interested in their payday right now. And so that's fine. That's what they're trying to do. What we need to do is provide the counterforce, which is saying, okay, yeah, we understand there's a need for resource extraction in certain places in certain ways. Let's make sure it's being done the right way. Let's make sure we're thinking about the next generation too. Let's make sure we are placing value not just on how many dollars a barrel of oil is worth, but also what is a square mile of, of open space worth? What is a night underneath the stars hearing wolves howl? What's that worth? Yeah. If we're looking at resources that are in demand and resources that are in supply, what different uh, resources of importance in America, I think one of those is in the lowest supply, but increasingly higher demand is somewhere you can go to get away from the madness of modern life. We are overran with technology with pushes and pulls from work. We're always connected. Um, 
you're seeing increases in depression, increases in stress. People are mentally struggling more than almost ever before from a lot of things I'm reading. We are a nation of people that need somewhere to get away from it. We need yep. somewhere we can go and hunt. We need somewhere we can sit on the side of a lake and listen to a loon and breathe for a minute and just be a human. And there, there's nowhere else in America that allows you to do that better than our, our federal public lands, I think. Absolutely. And you know, one thing that I've been thinking about, you know, as I got through your book is this death by a thousand cuts concept for public land is a, is a very real threat, multifaceted threat. You don't know. It's not so, it's not so easy sometimes to identify a large enemy, but there's a whole bunch of small ones with, with competing interests. And it, to me, it feels exactly the same as what we're facing as hunters. You know, we, we look at what do I want now? I want to kill big bucks. I want to hunt elk. I want to do this. I want to do that. You start looking at the future generations. And I, you know, I think like a good example of how this ties together is the Colorado over-the-counter elk thing. I get why the residents don't like it. If I was a resident bow hunter in Colorado, I yeah, I get it. I don't want to see 100 million non-residents come in. Here's the thing, though. Now, aside from the revenue, you have your fellow hunters who have very limited opportunities now to go hunt elk. That experience is incredible. So to, to lobby to take that away from them, that makes me nervous, partially as a non-resident. But you think about the future with the amount of people moving into Colorado, and it's a referendum state. You got a whole bunch of Californians relocating there. Your population centers are growing big time. And what if you say, what if you could wave a magic wand and say, no more non-resident elk hunters? You'd have awesome elk hunting to yourself, but you'd have a very diminished voice when you inevitably have to fight for your right to hunt because that's coming. And if you don't think so, look out to California and go ask somebody who traps out there or who wants to shoot a, a black-tailed deer with a lead bullet. These these threats are coming, and they're not coming in a broad sweep where, you know, we're just going to lose our right to hunt. It's going to be these little things, and we're going to do it to ourselves to some extent. And if we're not aware of that, it's just like the public land thing. We'll, we'll sit here and go, wow, that's never going to go away. We're Americans. We have public land. Yeah, you might not lose it the way you think you're going to lose it, have it taken away or transferred to the states, then sold off to private interests. But it might get chipped away and chipped away and chipped away. And that's what's going to happen with our hunting rights too. And we 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 can even do that to ourselves, which is the worst part. That's that's why I get fired up. I had Patrick Durkin on and we did a whole episode on non-residents and residents and the, and the hate and how in the end, you know, it might serve you now, but in the future, does it serve you? You know, does it, I mean, yeah. is, is Mark Kenyon's son going to get to hunt elk when he graduates high school? I don't think so. Like, I mean, yeah. and I think there's real danger there. So we, we have to be aware that this is not just a public land thing. This is tied into our way of life and our future and our kids and their kids. It's not, it's not so simple. Yeah. And I think it then comes to, so what do you do about it? And there's no easy answer there. I think the best thing I can figure is, is don't become apathetic. I think it's easy today with this fire hose of bad news that we see all the time across different swaths of whatever it is you care about. Uh, it's so easy to just get all this information. It just seems like the world's falling down all around you. And so it's easy to then just turn off. Just, I don't even care about any, I'm just going to get through my day because I can't handle trying to keep up on all this stuff. It's easy to do that. 
that's understandable almost to do that. But at least on some of these things that you really care about, you have to fight that urge. I think we have to fight the the default mode of just uh, throw your hands up and say, there's, there's probably nothing I can do. Um, because if everybody does that same thing, then really there will be nothing we can do. And like you just said, we will lose our public land privilege and access and, and inheritance bit by bit by bit by bit. And like you said, when they tell us that, okay, we're going to open up a mine here or whatever, we'll say, okay, well, it is what it is. And then they're going to say, okay, we're going to carve roads to this landscape now. I'll say, okay, whatever. And then they're going to say, all right, well, we're going to open up all wilderness areas to, you know, logging if the property is less than 5,000 acres. Okay, well, whatever. What can we do about it? Well, then 30 years from now, though, it's a dramatically different situation, just like you said, where then it's, oh, well, what's the thing we even have after all? It, maybe we should just sell it off because it's it's been so um, decreased in value or whatnot. So, so yeah, I think trying to fight the urge to shut it off and to ignore it, try to find a way to stay tapped in and tuned into the things that matter to you. And then remembering that our voices do count, even though it sometimes seems like they don't, when you can rally even a small group of people, a relatively small group of people that are willing to put some concerted time and effort to an issue. It's amazing what that can do Um, on the local level. Really, in particular, when you get folks calling senators or representatives, if you get folks sending letters or, or like I said, showing up in person even, that does still matter. These folks are – they are supposed to be representatives of us, but they are also simply reacting to whatever the squeaky wheel is in many cases. And if we can be a really, really loud squeaky wheel in these things that matter, um, we've got a chance of – of keeping our hunting rights, of keeping our public lands in a healthy state. Um, but it's not going to happen just by, it, just, it doesn't just happen. I think that was a big takeaway yeah. from all this research I did in the book was um, these things just didn't drop from heaven like a manna. Um, people had to fight like hell to get these places protected. And they had to fight like hell to keep them around and they've had to fight like hell to keep them in a healthy state and available to use for these different things that we use them for. And that happened 150 years ago. That happened 100 years ago. People stepped up 75 years ago. People stepped up 50 years ago. People stepped up 20 years ago. We have to be the ones to step up today. We need to be the ones that they're writing about 100 years ago saying it was because of Tony or is because of Steve or is because of Bob and Bill and Jill and Jan It's because of them that we still have 600 some million acres of great public land in 2100. I hope that's the case. Um, but it's on us. It is, it is our, in our hands. And so that speech might sound grandiose to the listeners, read that wild country and you'll, you'll Mark takes you through uh, Dozens of examples where, you know, we got lucky by somebody standing up and saying, we got to protect this place. And inevitably, somebody came along and said, no, that place is better off if we're we're pumping oil out of the ground or we're running cattle on it or something. And the, the amount of times somebody stood up for the wild lands because they 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 recognize it as such an invaluable resource for the people for the future is incredible. I mean, I, I had no idea, you know, like, like you said, you know, when you started writing the book or you were conceptualizing it, 
Like the the history of that, I mean, I learned a ton reading your book that I didn't know. I just kind of took for granted or I was like, oh, yeah, Roosevelt was a good dude. I've read his stuff. Like, man, there there was a lot that happened to allow us to be able to do what we do today. And it's 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 pretty awesome. So you're right. I think I think I think the fight is still here. And I think people need to be aware that like they do matter. And if you care about it and you care about the future, like you're you're in this, we're in this together and we're, we're hoping to rope in some more sides and, and get more people on our side. Yeah. Um, but yeah, to, to not be apathetic is a, is a huge thing. All right. So I got two things left for you, Mark, before we wrap okay. this sucker up. So people ask me often a fair amount. What, what's Kenyon like? What's Mark Kenyon like? <laughs> and I had never uh, had, I'd never had the the perfect way to describe you uh, until I read your book. And now what I'm going to say <laughs> is uh, imagine this big dorky dude who, who looks like a baby, but he's still growing. Uh, he's, he's, and he's taller than me and I'm six two. Who, who was in a yo-yo trick group called the Rotations, and you've got? I forgot about. I didn't. I shouldn't have put that in there, should I? And and you've got uh, Mark Kenyon's summed, up, and he likes deer too. Uh, uh, summed up pretty well. So yeah. I I love that that you put that in there. Uh, <laughs> last thing, you've interviewed uh, more. Uh, what, what what you'd consider whitetail hunting experts than than probably anyone. Um, in this entire country, in this entire world. I mean, you might you might hold the, the number one ranking there. What's the one thing that you've like taken away from those interviews in like a broad scope thing where like, man, this dude from Virginia and this, this lady from Texas and blah, 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 and down the line and the biologists and the QDMA guys and the public land experts. And what's the one thing you've taken away from your years of, of the Wired to Hunt interviews that's just like, hit home with you as something that comes from a lot of guests and it makes a lot of sense. Well, it's going to be a little bit um, repetitive because we kind of hammered on this in the very beginning, but it's, it's the God's honest truth. And it's the fact that there are a whole lot of ways to skin the cat when it comes to hunting. I mean, there are people, there are people that are doing it in so many different ways. There are folks killing mature bucks on food plots and they're killing them on ridgeside funnel stands and they're killing them by hunting small properties and they're killing by hunting big properties, public land, private land. Some guys never go in the bedding areas. Some guys only go in the bedding areas. Um, Many, many, many different tactics or strategies or perspectives that can lead to success in the woods. But there's only one thing that unifies every single one of the hunters that I know that's consistently successful. And that is the fact that they are willing to put in the work, they do not cut the corners. They don't make excuses and they are always learning. You kind of combine that and you you throw that into any set of circumstances and you get this different guy or girl that's a great hunter, but they always have that core inner truth about them. You got to do the work. You got to execute. You have to be willing to learn and don't be afraid to do the tough stuff. Um, you have to filter all these tips and tactics through a lens of your own goals through your own set of circumstances, where you hunt, how you want to hunt, what kind of experience you want to have. So it's really easy for someone to listen to an interview with a hunter who hunts in situation X and be really confused because it doesn't apply to their situation or try that stuff and then it doesn't work and they wonder why not. So I always caution my listeners and encourage them to listen to everyone, even if they hunt a totally different situation or way than you do. 
but always pass it through that filter and find the key consistent truths. Mm-hmm. And the key consistent truths are the thing we, things we just said. It is not rocket science. It is not, um, you know, there's no magic bullet. There's not one little thing that's going to make you all of a sudden become a great deer hunter. But it's, I think, the same thing. Uh, it's interesting. You could probably take that same set of principles that I just spoke about there and you could apply that to a business podcast or you could apply that to a podcast about people that are successful in the creative field, singers and songwriters, artists, professional athletes. I think it doesn't actually matter whether you've got a great jump shot or you're the best archer in the world or if you're really good at planning food plots or if you're damn good at flipping a soft plastic underneath a dock. If you are willing to work, 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 learn, learn, learn and not shy away from the tough things in life, you're going to have success. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's a, that's a good perspective. And the, the whitetail thing, you know, the one thing I would just add on to that about what you just said there is listen to people and view it through your scope, like you said, but understand that like, that's just like a, that's like, 10% of it. Like your experience and your willingness to get out there is what's going to shape you. And you know, that that ties into the work you're talking about, but I always think, you know, I mean, I hear stuff constantly where somebody will say, "Well, the deer don't move in the wind," or "The deer don't do this," or "The deer always do that." And I'm like, "You you haven't hunted enough." Because you're using that as an excuse not to hunt and you believe it. It's not true. And I mean, I hear people who've been around this game a long time say stuff like that. And I'm like, you know, when we talked earlier about get to the boundary waters, go hunt a hard place, go do this, go do that. What you see is those those mental hangups you have a lot of times, they're, they were like planted from somebody else. They were planted from, you know, somebody else's experience and your experience is going to vary. And what you find a lot of times is when you get out there and you do that work and you don't give yourself the shortcuts is you learn what's really true for your style of hunting and what you like and what you're capable of. And it's not something that's informed by somebody else. I mean, it, it, yeah. you, can, you can play off of it, but you personal experience is crazy important. Yeah. I mean, I mean, every one of us has a different starting point and we head out there into the field at some point with all sorts of information gaps and you have to try to plug those gaps somehow. And so you're going to go into it with, with try to learn lessons from other, what other people have experienced in their own lives. And so you're going to get all this stuff and you're going to head out into the field with this whole goodie bag that you got thrown over your shoulder of all these different ideas and these tendencies or, or rules or things that can help you get out there and have a starting point. But then, like you just said, you have to take that, go out there, live your life, see what you see. And then you're going to be able to steadily every year, remove one piece that Mark Kenyon gave you and say, well, what Mark Kenyon said, that kind of helped me point me in the right direction on this thing. But actually here, the way I'm doing it, I'm going to move this here and I'm going to put in my Joe Johnson piece because now I've learned it from my own experience this way. And if every year you're doing that a little bit, filling in those gaps, kind of molding the edges, kind of polishing the rough sides, you're going to come out of it with a lot more success, having had a lot more fun and uh, a few fill tags and fill freezers too. Absolutely. And so I I don't want to beat this horse too much more, but... Did I really... Participate in a yo-yo group? Yes, I did. <laughs> and we won two national talent show championships in the fourth and fifth grade, Tony. So it's all been downhill from there. 
You so you've been insanely successful your whole life is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm trying uh, to say. Mark is like a low level Kardashian, like still, <laughs> you know, like Rob or like one of the one of like the 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 least hot daughter. Yeah. That's that's Mark Kenyon. Yeah, um, that's my claim to fame. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, now I I forgot what I was going to say there. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I, know, I got distracted by all this crazy yo-yo royalty speak. Uh-huh. So, the the last little point I want to drive home about that with the experience and taking a piece from here and there is this: if you if you don't if you think we're being we're full of shit here, think about this. I, I'm getting hit up all the time, and I know you do too, with people who have hit the stage of their bow hunting career where they're working hard. And they're getting a few good encounters with big bucks and they're falling apart. And this is partially buck fever. We've talked about this on your podcast, but it's also they don't have the experience to be a closer yet. And that's and I don't want that to sound like arrogant or anything, but there's there this this stuff happens in a, like a, a progression and hunting just goes that way. If you're if you're doing it on your own and you're working hard and it's not easy to accumulate experience with mature bucks. And so that's why you screw up and it takes years and years and years of being around them and and you kind of like get over that hump eventually where you double lung one and it's just this crazy thing and then it just starts to come easier and easier but it's a process that nobody like you could ask me like hey what do i do or like why do i keep falling apart on big bucks it's like because you haven't been there enough man Mm -hmm. like there's nothing i'm going to tell you that's going to get inside that head of yours when that buck's walking down the trail and it's the one encounter this season that you've worked for it's just something you got to go through but if you put the work in and you get after it, you'll go through it more and more and you'll just, you'll get to that point where it's like controlled chaos and you can make it happen. Yeah. And it's, and it's funny, you, we spend so much time scouting all year and we send, spend so much time hanging tree stands or setting up blinds or trimming trails or cutting shooting lanes or listening to podcasts, taking notes, reading books and magazines, um, shooting our bows, hanging trail cameras. And we spend hundreds of hours every year to prepare for this moment we hope will come. But then we only experience that moment if we're lucky, like that one time that year. And that's all the practice and time we get to put in handling that one moment. That is not a recipe for consistent success at handling that one moment. So my advice to deal with that is Put yourself in that position as much as you possibly can, as close as you possibly can, which doesn't mean you're going to be shooting 15 mature bucks a year or five mature bucks a year, but it might mean, and I and I, hate, I don't know how to put this without it sounding a little bit crass, but you need to kill animals. Yep. You need to go out there. If you want to become a good hunter, you need to hunt and you need to kill. Yep. And there's no way to get better at handling the moment of truth than living the moment of truth and having success, having done that. And it's, there's a lot of people these days that see you and me talk about trying to kill mature bucks and they see people on TV shooting this huge deer all the time and they think, oh, that's what I need to be doing too. And they don't want to post a little buck online because they're afraid someone's going to say something bad about it or something. Please ignore that shit. Please yep. go out there and, and, have a blast shooting some does, shoot a spike, shoot a year and a half old, whatever it is that makes you happy, do it. Do not feel bad about it and realize that there is, of course, there is a huge value just from getting that meat. That's amazing. Fill your freezer. But then also realize that every time you have that experience, you are becoming much better because of it. I've got a buddy who just doesn't want to shoot anything until it's like a boon and crack of buck. 
And that Boone and Crockett buck is going to show up someday. God bless his heart. He's going to fall apart. He's not going to know how to handle it. Because for the last decade, he hasn't shot a single doe or single young buck. He refuses to go through that situation. And I love the guy. And it's okay he makes a decision. That's his own, that's his own decision to make. Um, but get out there and, and actually go through that entire hunting process, which does include those final moments. That's going to really help. Yeah, your your buddy's gonna crash and burn bad, most likely. Um, there's <laughs> I gonna hope be I'm a sh- wrong. I hope <laughs> well, wrong. the odds are are the odds are not in his favor. He might he might hold it together. He might be one of those people. But that that message, um, you know, it's it's it makes it sound like Mark's advocating there for just go out and kill a bunch of shit, and that's not true. The 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 value of putting your pin in the right spot and thinking about your point of impact and the time you should draw and executing that shot, whether it's a button buck or 170 incher is insanely valuable to you as a hunter. And it's not only valuable if it goes perfectly and you deflate those lungs and he runs 75 yards and tips over, but it's pretty valuable if you screw it up. And that's, that's what that, you know, like, that's what that's doing for you is it's helping you just move in the direction of fewer and fewer screw ups. Like it's still going to happen, but it's not going to be like a guaranteed thing, which is what some people get into where they get that encounter and it is going South no matter what, like you can, you can move beyond that, but it takes time and it takes experience and you're not going to get that experience over and over on 170 inches. You know, like there's going to be some forkies mixed in there somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And and I want to make sure to be clear, like I, I don't say that lightly and I don't say that out of any sense of disrespect for that, uh, for those animals or the life and the serious nature of taking a life. I, I simply mean it in what you said, it, that process going through all that has a, has a real value from a hunting standpoint. And as long as you are doing it for the right reasons, in addition to that, keeping that meat, using that meat, appreciating that animals, as long as all those things line up, it's a win, win, win. Yeah. It's, it's exactly like if you wanted to, I don't know, walk the dog with a yo-yo, you wouldn't be able to do it on your first try. Would you Mark? No, you know, <laughs> you need a whole lot of hours practicing in the driveway, but let me tell you what, there's a great side benefit of that, Tony. Cause when you're sitting there in your wind pants and your rotations t-shirt in the driveway <laughs> and you're, and you're doing that yo-yo trick called walk the dog, you can't imagine how many girls will stop by and yeah. see what you're up to and smile at you and flitter their eyelashes and say, wow, Mark, you're really good. <laughs> see, there, there's Mark Kenyon's sneaky dating advice. Just become a yo-yo <laughs> trick master. All right, buddy. So uh, where can people find the book? Well, the book, if it's uh, pre-December 1st, it is available only on Amazon. After December 1st, it will be available wherever you would like to purchase it. You can find it on Barnes & Noble's website, Target's website, Amazon's website, all those places, independent bookstores. Um, it's hit or miss. Depends on which ones will stock it or not. But most places you can find a book, you'll be able to find That Wild Country, an epic journey through the past, present, and future of America's public lands. Listen, listen to how professional that is. Um, you can <laughs> right find Mark on, <laughs> on Wired to Hunt as well. Um, several meat eater series. Um, you got the back 40 going strong. You've got how to kill a buck, which uh, involves my favorite deer hunter in this country, uh, Spencer Newhart. Spencer Newhart, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and me too. Uh, we, we created that uh, this year and uh, that's going over really well. You're all over the place. Uh, thank you so much for coming on, Mark. This has been a blast. Thank you, Tony. I really appreciate it. It was fun. Thank you so much for listening. 
I can't honestly put into words how much I appreciate anyone taking the time to check into the Hunt for Real podcast. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe so you can get the latest episodes each week as we drop them. You can also find us at huntforreal.com, our YouTube channel where we'll be putting up tips and films throughout the year, as well as through all the usual suspects when it comes to social media. Again, thank you so much for listening.